Welcome everyone to Mutuality Matters, gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. I am Erin Monas here with my wonderful co-host Blake Dean. And today, guys, we are beyond excited to have one of our favorite people. I mean, we have so many good guests, but let's face it, we geeked out over this one. Author and theologian, Dr. Cynthia Westfall. Now, Cynthia Westfall is a PhD and is assistant professor of New Testament at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. She's the author of Discourse Analysis of the Letter to Hebrews, Paul and Gender, which is actually what we're going to focus on reference a lot today, and has been part of an urban mission in the inner city in Denver for more than 20 years. For the last five years, she's also been involved in urban ministry in the greater Toronto area. Cindy lectures widely for academic, popular, and church audiences on gender and faith. She has mentored more than 50 graduate students, some of whom write and speak for Christians for Biblical Equality International. Cindy serves on CBE's Board of Reference and the Evangelical Theological Society's Gender and Evangelicals Study Group, ETS of Ontario and Quebec, and the former Front Range CBE chapter in Denver. Cindy's also founded and chaired the Sophia House, Transformational Housing for Women at Risk for Homelessness, and she is currently working with CBE's Bible Translation Task Force to actually work on an updated translation of scripture. So she is she is a Pauline expert and biblical scholar and, um, and biblical linguist. And so she is going to take us uh, to school today. So Blake Dean, what, what should we be listening for? What should our listeners look forward to with this podcast? Yeah, thanks. I'm so excited. I have wanted to talk to Dr. Westfall for an incredibly long time. Um, If you've been around the podcast for a while, you know that I mentioned her in the literal first episode of this podcast. Yeah, she features a lot in season one. Complete as she should. And you're going (laughs) to learn why she gave us so much of her time was so generous with her time generous enough that actually we have two episodes coming out with content from dr westfall so what you're hearing today is part one and in this part we're going to start off talking about ephesians 5 um, and then journey into first timothy and the creation narrative we're trying to get her to do a thirty thousand foot look over some of these really um troubling passages or passages that have been interpreted in troubling ways and she does so with such humor and reverence for scripture um, and high articulation. And we're excited for you to get to meet her this week. Oh, gosh, she's so smart, y'all. So you're going to want to put on your thinking caps. But I'll tell you, if you've ever had it uh, weaponized against you, someone saying, well, the Bible says that I permit no woman to teach a man and all of these different passages that are found in the Pauline letters, guys, Part one and part two are going to be super helpful to you. Um, She actually uh, mentioned something I want to touch on, which she tells a story. She tells actually several stories about her time in seminary and as a scholar watching um, certain evangelical minds actually break their own rules and contradict some of their own teachings when it comes to biblical interpretation of these passages um, and the way that they use them against women. And she's going to reference, she's going to say a word over and over again. The word is gar. And uh, that is basically the Greek word. Um, it's, it's used usually translated for. So it's a little tiny word. And she's going to say it several times. But for those of you who haven't taken Greek or Hebrew, I wanted to enlighten you to this because what she's going to expose is that this tiny little word is basically turned into a huge, important, interpretive um, uh, connecting point. And she's going to shut that down and say, actually, it's not. It's just a little tiny word. Uh, so when you get to that part, don't don't tune out. Lean in because it's it's good stuff. But uh, but she's like super smart. And uh, I think for a moment there forgot that that most people haven't taken Greek. But just be on the lookout for that. So we hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Cynthia Westman. Welcome. We are so excited to be here with Dr. Westfall. We cannot wait for the conversation that will come, but we start this episode like we start every episode um, with our segment, Watch, Read, or Listen. So Aaron, what are you watching, reading, or listening to these days? Okay, so I am watching something that is a a little bit obscure. So I, I don't know if this is a pattern overall, but I've started getting more connected to like Canadian television shows. And there is a show called 
Murdoch mysteries. And of course, it's it's all these mysteries. And um, but it's set right at the end of uh, the 19th century, um, going into the 20th century. And it's this detective that uses all of these uh, scientific ideas at his disposal, but it's based out of Toronto. And it's so interesting because there's all these characters that are being brought in, like Winston Churchill and Wild Bill Hickok <laughs> and um, uh, Thomas Edison and like all, and you just forget what an exciting time that was in history. So it's it's educational, but it's also very entertaining. So Murdoch Mysteries, um, I, I recommend it. It's It's been fun. We've been blasting through them. So what about you, Blake? I need to remind no one that we're in the middle of um, an election cycle here in the U.S. Yeah. And so to kind of heal the balm or heal the open wounds from that, we, me and um, my wife, Erin, are watching copious amounts of The West Wing. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, just copious amounts of The West Wing. We just watched the reunion special that debuted on HBO Max for the second time um, and cried through it for the second time. So the West Wing definitely holds a special place in um, in our hearts, in our living room. So, yeah. Yes. And so, Cindy, watch, read, or listen, something you're watching, reading, or listening to. Anything, anything that you've got. Well, I, I'm watching The Good Place, <laughs> Breaking It. <in>. Yes. <laughs> but... It's so good. Yeah. We love it. We it's love it. It's funny. It's funny. But let's lay that aside and say what I'm reading and I just began mm. <laughs> to read is uh, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of the Neighbor uh, by Caitlin Sheese. And uh, I'm very, very excited about this book because it is creating a place for conversation of the things that have happened in the election and the divisions that we're all really, really aware of and talking about, well, the, how, how our choices are working out in our personal relationships. So, I mean, it's an amazing book. I recommend it. That's wonderful. Yeah, we we can't get enough of those resources right now, for sure. And and Caitlin's book pr- looks like it's going to be a winner. So we will take that recommendation highly. But yeah, so we have such a, a wonderful and important conversation uh, today. Um, Blake, do you kind of want to get us in get us into it? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Dr. Westfall's book, Paul and Gender, which came out a handful of years ago. Uh, so I just wanted to open up and why did you write Paul and Gender? What was your hope for this project when it came out? This is a, a funny question. I have a boring and disappointing answer. I, <laughs> I was simply asked to write it for a series yeah. by my academic advisor. Uh, and I signed a contract, so I had to do it. And he ended yeah. up hiring me. Um, and so he's my boss now. And so there was no option of, of uh, bailing <laughs> on the contract. But um, it's really significant, though that when I talked to my uh, supervisor for my master's degree and I talked to my supervisor for my PhD um, and they said, what would you like to write on? In both cases, I said, how about Paul and gender or women in ministry? And they said, no, no way. (laughs) That will ruin your career. Don't Mm. touch it with a 10 foot pole. You will Mm. never be taken as a serious scholar if you write on this. Mm. And yeah. so, but I couldn't avoid moonlighting, right? <laughs> I, I had to be grappling with this issue all the time, you know, because of my personal integrity and, and coherence with the, of the Bible with itself and all these things, coherence of the, of, you know, what people said the Bible said with how my life was turning out. And the coherence of the Bible was truly the biggest issue for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when I did agree to do it, I faced the possibility that it would provoke claims that I was doing poor scholarship. Mm-hmm. After all, you know, that's what they said about Craig Keener. They said Craig Keener was a poor yeah. scholar because he wrote yeah. on this. And so I said, okay, that's going to happen to me. I- I'm mm-hmm. going to be attacked. I'm going to just have to uh, be ready. Uh, But I really came to the point in my life journey where I said, you know what, it's no longer about me. Mm. Um, I am too old and too far down the road to actually think that I'm arguing for myself or I'm arguing for someone to hire me or do this or that or the other thing. And it became for me, um, although, of course, I'm totally invested. I'm not trying to say that I had no investment in it, but it, but yes. it became not about me. Yes. It mm. became about what I like to say, and I've said this in other podcasts, 
is that eventually you've got to decide to lie down on the, in the mud and let the next generation walk on you. Mm. Wow. wow. Yeah. Mm. We appreciate you saying that. And, and it's, it's something that we've actually seen come up a lot of times with authors that we've interviewed. And, and I know for me, my, my fall into gender theology was an occupational hazard. I didn't have the choice oh. to ignore it. Right. You, you just, you had to do the scholarship and you wanted to do it well. Right. You didn't want to, to have some sort of cognitive infidelity of having to like rationalize yourself into this. You wanted it to flow from, from the heart of God and, and from the gospel. And so um, I completely resonate with that, but I think I just appreciate your candor. And I think that's an important piece of all of this for, for people to hear and understand what's behind it. Yeah. And I also, I appreciate you um, noting that biblical coherence was something that was important to you in like the, like that was a big question in your mind when approaching the project. Cause that's what, that's a gift I received from your project from reading it. Something I was so compelled by in Paul and Gender was it gave me a, a greater vision or or more suggestions to what Scripture could be doing and what how the text can have conversations with itself rather than having to negotiate um, these interpretations that feel so conflicting at times. Um, so thank you for that. Um, in the introduction to the book, you suggest that most quote traditional interpretations of Pauline passages. Um, that specifically discuss gender seem to remove biblical situation, time, and culture as relevant for their readings. I wonder if you could talk about why you think these elements are crucial for interpreting scripture generally, but specifically Pauline passages regarding gender. Well, that's what, what I would start with is to say that in, in all my training and education, um, whether we're talking about a seminary or as a, as a biblical scholar, uh, the starting point of evangelical biblical interpretation is the importance of literary context, that is, what's this text mean in the context of the book it's written, and what's it mean in the context of the past, you know, and, and just various literary contexts, and what does it mean in the context of culture and situation, and of course, what does it mean in the context of the Greek language system and uh, the Greek text. And, and that's, the, that's extremely important in determining meaning. Well, I, I came to also study linguistics uh, as I was working on my PhD, and that really gave me a better understanding of how text and context works. And even though I wasn't always really obvious about how it was contributing, it seems that people have not missed that linguistics were driving a lot of my understanding. It, they certainly were. How does language work? And so that being the case, uh, I recognized that the interpretation of the key passages that concern gender uh, had been long established in church traditions from what I call atomistic interpretations. That is, they, were, they, they lifted the verses out of context and interpreted them out of context, and they treated the, uh, the verses as if they were each other's context. That is, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to interpret 1 Timothy 2 with 1 Corinthians 14, with 1 Corinthians 11, and then we're going to go back and interpret 1 Timothy 2 with 1, uh, with 1 Corinthians 11 and keep building on a foundational and circular argument, not that they were aware that this was happening, of course, but mm -hmm. just that these, the understanding of these texts and how they must be obeyed um, were, were firmly established in church tradition without a sensitivity to these contexts. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't unconcerned about these texts. No, they were very, very important, very, very meaningful, but they were also right. a really, really good model for how you understand a text in context. And when I teach biblical interpretation, I can't hardly help using these texts to talk about word studies and fallacies or you know, lack of, lack of use of context and go on and on and on and say, these are great models for talking about the evangelical approach to interpretation. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. and and. That's that's for, for many of us that grew up evangelical. That's that was our bread and butter was was taking the Bible so seriously and, and really digging into that scholarly approach. So, yes, it, it's, it's nice when those fundamentals come together. And the fact that, you know, I was committed to the Bible and the and, and inerrancy of Scripture mm -hmm. as my mm -hmm. authority 
And I was not committed to these church traditions as that kind of authority. The Bible was front and center. And then I started realizing, oh, we say that, but the traditions and the theological frames that we have developed actually are much more authoritative uh, in practice than the actual text in its context. Yes, such a good word. I love it. I'd love to talk um, about just something you mentioned um, again in the whole of Paul and Gender, um, which is the ways you see Paul missionally adapting to Greco-Roman cultural norms rather than adopting dominant culture. Um, I wonder if you could give an example of this and why you think this is an important distinction for our interpretations. Right. Well, we can start with Paul's general teaching on how he states that it's his goal to confront culture. You know, it's, 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 his, it's one of the cores of his teaching. So in Romans uh, 12, 2, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, he's, he's correcting and confronting people who seem to think that we should live by the standards of this world. And he says, no, no, we're not living by the standards of this world. I want to demolish strongholds arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God by taking every thought captive to Christ. And mm -hmm. I think that everybody knows that he took on the sexuality, the views of sexuality in the Roman culture and very, very much confronted them. And Christianity really caused a huge transformation and how yeah. people thought about these things. Uh, and it's funny that people think that you can have a complete revolution in sexuality, but not move a single piece in the understand Greco-Roman understanding of gender. That's course, right. It's not possible. And I actually think mm -hmm. some of the confusion on this that, that in which they think that Paul absolutely adopted the Greco-Roman understanding of gender and gender roles is one of the reasons we're having this problem with sexual morality and uh, exploitation of women today. Yes. Because, Amen. Yes, because we're misunderstanding how it works. And if you keep this Greco-Roman gender hierarchy in, then it, it, it is a system in which women are used and exploited. And it, it, yeah. it is the outworking of the ideology. It's going to happen. One of the strategies that a conquered or colonized people uh, use uh, to deal with the dominant culture that's oppressing them as they take you know their uh, stories their norms or their codes and they subvert them and this can be shown across the board this has been actually a big discussion in biblical studies say over the last uh, 20 or so years that all of a sudden this realization has come to the fore well one of the most obvious places in which it happens is when Paul takes the Greco-Roman household codes, such as in uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. It's been traditional to look at those household codes and say, look, Paul uses Greco-Roman household codes to talk about the relationships between husbands and wives. So he is adopting the Greco-Roman uh, codes, mm. but he is not. And, and this is, and, and so it's not been recognized that he was subverting the codes by changing things. And as I just said, you can't move a piece and not have uh, the, the ideology all of a sudden shift. And of course, we'll say that uh, the con conquered peoples or colonized, pe colonized peoples, they really get this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed, so yes, exactly. They do. In the Greco-Roman household code, the codes, when it talked about uh, wives, or children or slaves, it always focused on their obedience. The obligation was solely on the part of the partner in that relationship without power. They were obligated to obey. And, and the um, husbands, the parents, and the masters, they had the right to authority without any obligation. There was no obligation. They were, they were owed obedience. Hmm. But Paul took that, and it's really glaring in Ephesians 5, and made a reversal. 
So Paul enters the, uh, the household code with a statement of mutual submission. Then he avoids using the term submission when he transitions mm. into talking about wives. Now I'm talking about the Greek, not the English, that Indeed. he never actually says um, women submit to your husbands. He says uh, submitting mutually one to another. And then he says women to husbands. So first of all, he even avoids saying submission. He never mm. gives women one single command, not an imperative, not really a modal. Uh, in the whole thing, but he gives all the commands, obligations, and pointed illustrations of the service of love to the men. But this is so obscured by the English translations that they mm -hmm. frame it to actually make it look like the whole point is women's submission, because they start with women to men, and then they make it a finite sentence. Women submit to your husbands, and then the climax and conclusion is what? A wife must respect her husband. You know, say, well, I don't know what all this in the middle is about, but I sure get the point. <laughs> you know? And it's all about women and submitting. That's clear. Yeah. But it, women <laughs> must respect her husband isn't even a command in the Greek. The, the actual emphasis or prominence of that passage is all on the finite verb phrase. Now I'm, I'm using technical terms. I hope you all forgive me. And this is the problem that so much of this is a technical argument, but mm -hmm. all the emphasis is on the emphatic command to the husband. And, and, and if I read it to you in Greek, it would be, and, and each of you, that's every one of you, you, <laughs> you, know, you, 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 like we used to say when someone did a foul in basketball, you love your wife. And then there's something we call a Hena clause. So that, your wife may respect you. That's what it says. <laughs> it, it is really is putting it content, the wife's respect contingent on the man getting the love right. And you've got all the stuff reversed where you actually have the idea of Philippians 2. You know, how is how are you ahead to your wife? It's a Philippians 2 kind of head where you lay your right. prerogatives down and you take the, the, the form of a bond servant. I'm probably talking about this out of order, but it's also the golden rule. Uh, mm -hmm. It's your body. Do unto your body as you would, oh, as you do do unto your body. Do unto, mm -hmm. yeah, you would do unto <laughs> others as you would have others do unto you. It's mm -hmm. about taking the, the person who doesn't have the power in the relationship and showing how they can be a model of Christ. And so we, we understand that, that uh, slaves are used uh, as models of Christ. Children are used as models of Christ. Hey, here women are used as models of submission for men. Oh, gosh, that is that is so good. I feel like we're like going to church on this. But it really is. It's so it's so healing uh, moments, moments in my own journey where I found that the scripture I had been taught was not actually the scripture that was given. And just just the relief and I, and I hope our listeners are beginning to hear this because um, it's it's a it's a retuning and it's a rediscovering of, of what God has given and it helps us understand oh God actually isn't sexist God actually doesn't believe that women are inferior there's there's something here that's been missing but we don't have to necessarily um, uh, sort of commit mental gymnastics to try to find it. It actually is in good scholarship in the text. And, and that is such a huge relief. I know to myself and so many others who have wrestled with this. So thank you. Thank you for that. I just, I just love it. Well, it's this, it's this obvious thing of this subversion of the Greco-Roman model to uh, bring in what's being Christ-like in these power relationships. And so, I know I haven't said this, but every one of the, the positions of power get a command. And I'll tell you, when you go in Colossians 3, the focus is more on the master-slave relationship, unlike Ephesians 5. And it feels threatening when you read what he, what he says to masters. Uh, it's, it's a threat. <laughs> that, that if you don't understand that you have an obligation in this relationship, an unequal balance of power, then, you know, you better be afraid because you're going to be answering to God. Mm. I find it to be a threat, thinly veiled threat to uh, owners of slaves. Wow. So I love something that you talked about earlier, which was how oftentimes instead of using maybe the appropriate and immediate context for passages that could be known as like clobber passages for women, instead they get lifted out of their own context and used with other passages that seem to be 
um, at least in the English translation, saying something specific about gender relationships or gender roles. Um, and we use those passages with each other as their context. While I loved in your explication of Ephesians 5, um, the exploration of the context, I know for many of our listeners, they're going to go, that was really compelling about Ephesians 5, but I have this other passage in the back of my head that's either been taught to me or used against me or um, whatever the relation may be. And that's First Timothy 2. And I certainly don't want to make you just repeat the chapter that you've already written. So we urge people to go buy your book and read that. But I'd love to just see some ways that you um, think first in traditional interpretations, how some of those interpretations are based on some imposed assumptions of the text rather than the immediate context of Right. First Timothy. Well, first of all, one of the um, interesting beginnings to the whole discussion is um, who is the text written to? And mm -hmm. is this a text for everyone um, to obey? Like if you see the command in um, First Timothy 2, uh, you'll hear, I hear it all the time. What does God say? What does God say? I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's what God says. You don't like it. Yeah, that is your problem. Right, right. And, uh, and so you say, well, hold the phone. First of all, is this a universal command that God says to everybody for all times and all places? And mm -hmm. when they quote it, it certainly sounds like it. But right. I actually point out that First Timothy describes itself as a personal letter that's written from Paul to Timothy. And so right off, um, that sets it up as, as being more occasional. First of all, it's, it's someone that are like besties, you know, they're best friends, and they've known each other for about 15 to 20 years. Timothy really knows how Paul rolls. He's yeah. been with him on all kinds of mission trips and in the foundation of all kinds of churches. And so, you know, uh, and, and the other thing about it is it says in the beginning of the passage that Paul is writing Timothy to help him correct false teaching, myths, and genealogies that are floating around. And so my position is that's the purpose of the letter, and that's what he's proceeding to do. He's telling right. you what he's doing, and then he proceeds to do it. You can assume that he's helping Timothy correct the specific false teaching that's out there. And so we have a personal letter between two people that know each other in and out and know, yeah. and Paul, and Timothy certainly knows what Paul's position is on women teaching and holding authority. And he knows what he practices. Yeah. Um, but what you have here is, is that he's, he's acting like he's giving new information. So if you recognize it's, it's saying it's a personal letter, then it proceeds to say, we have a situation here that we're addressing. You call that an occasional letter, an occasional theology that is written to confront specific problems. And then what Paul says, he, God does not say, I don't permit a woman. Paul says, you know, right now I'm not permitting women to teach and um, not, not I, I, I should correct that actually. Don't, don't correct it though. Don't, don't go any racist. Don't edit this out. He doesn't say, I'm not permitting women. He says, I do not permit a woman or I do not permit a wife to teach or is it have authority? Well, that word, not really. Uh, yeah. it's like it's a, abusively towards mm -hmm. her husband. Mm -hmm. And then he gives the marriage passage. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. Paul is saying that's what he is not doing and and it is actually you know didn't have to be said that way i would suggest that he's saying that way is actually uh, signaling an ad hoc practice in these circumstances because he's already framed it he's already constrained what he's talking about i think um just thinking of our listeners and who are not biblical scholars but are just trying to be faithful in their own particular context how do we understand the importance and authority of God's word, um, specifically in like First Timothy, if this is a personal letter? Like if this is not a letter to us, how do we understand it as a letter for us? 
um, especially as scripture itself. That's for all scripture, right? We want to say um, scripture was written for our sakes, as it says in Romans 4 and, and several other, this was written for our sake, or to say, God doesn't care about oxen, does he? This was written for our sake. And so we want to, we, we know that all these things were written for our sake, not just written for our sake, but preserved by the early church to say, you know what, this, it, this, we're not taking all of Paul's writings, but this is helpful for the church as a whole. But when you say it's written for your sake, you also have to realize that that your context is not the context of the beginning of, of the initial letter. And here we're coming into a discussion that's gotten a lot of tension lately about where does meaning reside? Does meaning reside in the intention of the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy? Or does meaning reside in me, and, and I'm in a dialogue with the text, and Paul, once Paul wrote it, he lost control of the text. Now I control the text, and I control the meaning. And you know, you understand that this is a postmodern deconstruction kind of approach to the text. What's right. funny about this is I would say all the traditional biblical scholars would say that the um, authority is in what Paul wrote and for me, too, I think I've already laid my cards on the table. The authority of the text is in what God says. Now, is God saying something different in the first century than he is now? And I think since we believe in the authority of the text, it behooves us to actually keep on looking. So what did this mean in its original context? And I'll tell you something. Um, my school of linguistics is a contemporary school, and it takes into account modern thought. But when we're, when we're looking at any given uh, text, we're not doing this, what does the text mean to me? We're trying to discover, when we apply linguistics, what the text meant when it was spoken or written. That's right. And so, I mean, when you think that the authority resides in the text as it was originally given, then that means that you need to cross that you need to cross the, the horizons, and and you need to go to the first century. You don't bring the first century to you. But what I'm suggesting in practice, it's kind of humorous that um, biblical scholarship has. Uh, practiced a lot of reader-oriented criticism. For instance, a, a lot of these passages, such as 1 Corinthians 11, have been heavily influenced by Chrysostom. Mm -hmm. So someone writing in the fourth century does some creative exegesis, and, and, and somehow that becomes standard. And it's the, you look at the exegesis, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. At least in, in, in a couple of the, I'm not saying none of his exegesis was <laughs> but when you look at what he did with First Corinthians 11, it, it's a, there are a lot of exegetical and logical fallacies um, that are taken to interpret it. And so um, I'm saying reader-oriented criticism has dominated first, the understanding of First Timothy 2 instead of actually looking at the letter in its context. And I think the assumption behind my initial discussion that we probably all know is that Almost universally, it's been taught that this is not a personal letter. Do not read this as a personal letter. This is a command that's binding on all churches at all times. Prove it. It would go directly against the way the letter presents itself. And when, when Paul says, you know, right now I'm not um, permitting a, a wife to behave in this way, and I say, no, that's that's God himself Say no, it's just the opposite. Uh, Paul is always quite careful about his language, you know, and like in First Corinthians seven, another gender passage, he says, hate people footnote. Uh, this isn't uh, the Lord speaking. This is me. Right. Yeah. OK, now it's the Lord. Well, in this passage, he's saying I am speaking here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean there's not things for us to learn for the life of the church. And I think that's what you help us oh, think about, though, is, in its particularities. Yeah. That, that, that you read yeah. it and, and you learn. And uh, But but it, the problem is, is that we've maybe been learning the wrong lesson uh, from yes. it and used it actually to say as a, as a, to control others as opposed mm -hmm. to instructing us. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, what initially compelled me uh, years ago to revisit scholars on passages such as this was 
the evidence of people like Phoebe, uh, like Lydia, like Junia, it already in Paul's writings that made me think if this was supposed to be universally taught, if this really was how Paul felt, he's contradicting himself oh, yes. in some ways. So, so what's more likely that scripture is contradicting itself or that my interpretation might have flaws in it? So, so going back and, and putting the onus back on, okay, what have I gotten wrong? What have I missed in this? Um, but I will say there's, there's an aspect of this passage that I, I would love your help on because, and you address it beautifully in the book, but I think our listeners will probably appreciate it, is the use of the creation narrative in um well of course first timothy i'd like to to start there but you know we that glides us over to uh first corinthians as well but i feel like uh for some of the arguments i've had um or or just not arguments colorful conversations with colleagues about these uh these things there's something about the creation narrative that feels like it gives some weight and authority to uh, the way Paul is describing women. Um, but you have done some brilliant scholarship on this. And I was just wondering if you could help our listeners maybe rethink what's actually happening with Paul referencing that narrative. Well, this is this is so amusing too. Uh, it's a, it's a, this is a history of biblical scholars breaking their own rules. <laughs> and how has this been traditionally taught? And, and uh, one of the things I talk about quite a bit at least I think I talk about it quite a bit in my book, is how powerful the frames that have been placed on the, these passages are, the, the subheadings, the way these passages have been explained. I can remember sitting in a New Testament course when I was in seminary, kind of early in the game, having the professor talk about this passage and then say, um, okay, and, and it, it was a Greek class actually, and he said, okay, so you have, I don't, permit a woman to teach and authenticate a man. I don't even want to say exercise authority because it's such a poor interpretation. So <laughs> I don't want, <laughs> I, I quoted it as what people say, but as, as in terms of really talking about what the passage says in the Greek, it's not a good representation. It, it actually says to teach. I do not permit a woman nor to authenticate a man or say to teach. I don't permit a wife nor to authenticate her husband. Four, this is a gar, and he goes, he says, now this is an explanatory gar that explains precisely why he's putting these prohibitions in. And I'm staring at him, and, I, and I'm just a newbie, and I'm going, that is a big theology to read into a gar, you know? <laughs> that is a yes. huge <laughs> assumption. <laughs> What is the logical connection and what does that little gar tell you? That little gar tells you it's support material, but, but virtually nothing else. And so what it is, is that you have to infer and it's a complete inference. And this is where the personal letter between Paul and Timothy kind of come into play is that, and, and we don't realize what a huge inference must be gone. And you can go right, or you can go left, you can go straight down the middle or to the diagonal. And, um, and, and it's, it's all these options of what the logical relationship is. But it's, it's said with complete authority, this is what the GAR means. And then there are some very bad uh, explanations of why the GAR will mean this. And I'll say, just ignore them because it's an over-interpretation and it's a very poor understanding of how we talk about these grammatical signals, these conjunctions, yeah. and how they give you signals. But here's one thing you can know for sure. Timothy knew what the relationship was. Timothy yeah. perfectly knew why Paul was bringing up the Genesis narrative. And Paul did not have to explain the relevance of the Genesis narrative to Timothy. But we have to infer. In, in view of that, then, um, so what's the logical relationship between the narrative? And then in traditional interpretation, it goes into, it looks at what is actually a very truncated narrative. And I'm mm -hmm. glad you're calling it a narrative because they call it a theology. And that's hilarious because one of the first things I was taught is you never get theology from a narrative ever, <laughs> which, uh, which I contend with actually, I say, oh yes, you do. I mean, I, I'm really sad to hear I don't get theology from the resurrection of Christ. Unfortunate. But back in the beginning, you know, before we had these discussions and before we revived our understanding of narrative and how it means, um, you weren't supposed to ever get theology from a narrative, but boy, did they get theology from this very, very brief <laughs> summary 
Yes. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. they were breaking their rules. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so as a, as a young student of the Bible, when I, when I saw people breaking their rules, that really broke my heart, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to decide who are you, what are you, who, who or what are you not trusting when this happens? But at any rate, what do we do with narratives and what could Paul be doing with narratives? And um, I, I think that there are two, when you actually look at the content of the narrative, well, first of all, it's, it's the, it's, it, it is a summary of the marriage passage. Every, everywhere else we, we look at this and go, oh, it's the marriage passage, the creation, you know, this is great. And, um, and I'm saying when he goes to the singular male and female and then backs it with the marriage passage, oh, this is about marriage. And then he ends up with childbirth. Now I know it's about marriage. It talks about, you know, and so, and so I feel that the, and, and uh, some scholars say, no, it should say her husband. So it doesn't have to, you got the marriage passage and you got childbirth. You've got enough information given that you know that this is uh, addressing house, a household issue and the relationship between a husband and wife. And then it goes back and then, and then it says, okay, and this is, this is what it says. Now, what's the relationship between that and the prohibition of how a woman relates to a man? And I'm arguing a wife relates to a husband. Again, we're going to have to infer, but I could go in two directions. Number one, I see in two places in 1 Timothy, he's, all, he's, he's very worried about uh, myths and old wives tales that are going around. And um, there is a second century Gnostic text um, in which uh, the, the um, order of creation was reversed and um, woman was created first and women, you know, didn't fall first, uh, man fell first. I think that that's telling. So how early is that? And, and how much do you weigh in that the Gnostic tradition has actually uh, claims a oral tradition, the same way that um, the Christian scripture and apostolic teaching claimed an oral tradition, the Gnostic tradition claimed the same tradition. So the mm-hmm. likelihood that a, one, a document that's actually earlier than most of our papyri that we have of New Testament texts mm-hmm. reverses the creation order, I th- and, and he's worried about myths and old wives' tales, I put this together that there's a high likelihood that he was addressing a myth and an old wives' tale that was being, you know, not taught in the church. Oh, that would be that could be dealt with. No, it was being passed over the backyard fence and at the kitchen hearth among the women's culture. Mm. And boy, that's scary because how is Timothy going to get at that women's culture? If these kinds of things are circulating among the women in Ephesus, and and you've got childbirth linked to it, you have got a mess. You have got a hot mess. Yeah. I think as as we've <laughs> learned. <laughs> That great term, right? It's a hot mess because um, you, it, it, because a, t- a single man like Timothy can't get to the women's culture and correct mm-hmm. it very easily. There are all kinds of uh, rules and regulations that are going to prevent him from uh, teaching the women directly. So what does he do? Well, in the passage, you actually see that the, the real command is that he wants women to learn. Mm-hmm. And he wants, and in this context, uh, if a woman is going to learn, she's going to be homeschooled by her husband. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, basically, I want all the women homeschooled as, as they are. That's how you, that's how you educate women. There's, you know, and we can't take time in the general service to address this. And I can't go door to door and do this because that's, that's improper. That's a problem. Yeah. And so he says, men you know, you need to homeschool your wives. And I don't want any reversals here. I don't want the women homeschooling the men because of this creation myth that's going around. Mm. And like I said, if this were, so I'm building this plausible context that accounts for all the evidence and that the fact that this myth going around has something to do probably with childbirth what does it have to do with childbirth? Oh, it could be all kinds of crazy things, but you know, because, because we're, we're in the home of Aphrodite and right, Af- right. Aphrodite is the goddess of women and Aphrodite sees women through every stage of their lives. And mm-hmm. again, in a place like Ephesus where magic was 
highlighted as this huge problem in Acts. And, and you know, all the men brought their texts in and burned them. And it was, they were a huge pile of texts, of magic texts that the men, the believers in the church brought in to be burned. Oh, but how are you going to get at the magic in the women's culture, especially the magic around childbirth? Mm. And this is going to be a place where you're going to have all kinds of syncretism that's going to undermine the faith. And so, uh, you know, at the time of childbirth, you know, the women go in the back room. Oh, man, God only knows what they're doing. You know, I mean, this has been how men have felt always. Yeah, exactly. While they're giving birth, they're having secret meetings, right? (laughs) And secret teachings. And and to some extent, I mean, when you look about the the magic that surrounded uh, the the, getting pregnant and giving birth, um, uh, there were some secret, there would be some secrecy to the magic of Aphrodite that would be brought into that situation. Gosh, and that is so helpful because I know the way that that passage was taught to me with with such an emphasis on the deception of Eve and and, and Adam sort of being kind of pushed up to the side. It it doesn't make sense in the context of the letter to the Romans where Paul is using Adam representatively yeah, as, awesome. you know, the, you know, <laughs> sort of for the fall. And so I was like, there need, what other sort of context, what other sort of situation is Paul having to address making this emphasis? Because he's not doing um, standard systematics because he's already outlined that pretty intensely in Romans. So he's not contradicting himself. There's something else he's addressing here. And so right. that yeah. historical uh, research and, and putting these things together from from the cultural perspective of of the the letter uh, is so helpful and, and and valuable and it helps us see that oh there might have been things that we missed because this is a personal letter mm-hmm. between two friends trying to address very specific things that are happening in uh, Timothy's pastoral care. I'm not a betting person, but I would put money <laughs> on <laughs> the, that the um, the surety that some mm-hmm. that we are missing things. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. what personal letters are. They, they uh, assume shared information that we don't share. And so we could actually put our money on that in all the passages that there are pieces uh, that, they, that, that the authors of the Bible and the recipients shared, shared information that we're missing. And that's why understanding the Bible is, is a lot of work. And you mm-hmm. want to be careful and handle with care because mm-hmm. uh, you can and do and you do make inferences that are inappropriate. We all do it. We must do it. Uh, we are trying to make sense of this text and we're creating backstories around it. And I think our whole stories about how we understand the Bible is, is going back and saying, oh, I read that entirely wrong. I repent, you know, yeah. well, it's I repent, you know yes. in, in, on so many levels, you know, <laughs> and so, um, mm-hmm. And in going to even just referencing the household codes, uh, we did it with slavery. We got it wrong. We got it wrong. And we there's no church in the Western world now that would tell that would say that scripture upholds a theology that um, that upholds the hierarchy of slavery and, and that that's that's just perfectly fine. And yet the, there's such a unique link a lot of times between the submission of women or the, the subjugation of women and the subjugation of slaves and yet we've we've moved the needle on the slavery debate, but we're still we're still going back and and having to repent of of our bad theology. I, I say it's area. the second to the last enemy to be destroyed, perhaps. Mm, yeah. <laughs> the last Indeed. enemy is death, but is sexism? When's sexism going to be destroyed? And mm. um, and and I feel that well, I think what Genesis three tells us is that women are paradigmatic for these um, exploitive relationships, mm-hmm. and so um, it's a it's a when Adam uh, when Adam sinned and fell, uh, the consequences of the fall were not on human relationships. The consequences of the fall were between him and the earth, and and the consequence of death. The consequence of the breakdown in human relationships comes in what is said to Eve. And so we, we come out of Genesis 3, and the first thing that happens is that um, uh, Cain kills Abel. Okay, so we've got the death introduced with Adam, but we've got the I will take your life and rule over your life coming from the relationship between male and female. So it's, it's actually 
some of the major explanations I'm looking for about the evils in the world actually must come from the consequences to Eve um, in, in the terms of her, you know, that, that childbirth coming out of who she is becomes um, the, an issue that places her at a great disadvantage. She will desire her husband, but he's going to rule over her. And that relates to being enslaved, being exploited, and being oppressed. Eve stands in the creation passage for those who are exploited, enslaved, enslaved and oppressed. Mm. Yes. Amen. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Blake Dean. And that was just part one. That was just part one. I, I want her to be my aunt. I'll say it. I, 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 I want her to be my friend. I want to go over and drink coffee with her. <laughs> she is so, she, she was so good, guys. She's I'm, hilarious. I imagine your brains are reeling. You probably heard us laughing a ton in the background because if you could have seen her go, um, you can catch some of her energy, I think, after having just listened to this. But man, she is passionate about this stuff and so incredibly smart. Um, so guys, we know that, that we've thrown a lot at you and there's more coming in part two. So one of the things we wanted to actually lob up to you at the end of this one is um, our email, which is mutualitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. If you need some follow-up or if anything hits you that's uh, that you're curious about in all of this, or if you're like, mm, I don't know about that. Can I get some more content? First of all, buy her book. Her book goes way more in depth, Paul and Gender. We love it. But also email us. We are happy to discuss this with you. Yeah, I think the thing, too, that she does so graciously in this episode is she kind of dabbles in every... in 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 multiple passages that we ask her for. Yeah. She graciously goes wherever we ask her to go, yeah. n- knowing that she is not going to be able to articulate every crevice and nuance, um, and knowing that she's already written on this. And that's such a gift she gave to us. But um, if something interested you, or if you have follow-up questions, I would first encourage you absolutely to go buy her book because she sits down and makes nuanced and thoughtful arguments that she very beautifully and I think thoughtfully articulates again for us in the podcast, but an hour long podcast is nothing compared to a 400 page long book. Indeed. And guys, we, we do this because we want you to have really good scholarship for some of the conversations we know that you guys are getting in your churches and sacred spaces. We want you to be able to, to come back with something that is biblically faithful, but also just intelligent and helpful by people who are really smart, who have done really smart work. So um, thank you for joining us today, guys. Be sure to tune in uh, the Thursday after Thanksgiving for part two. Um, and if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, in addition to our email, we're on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, we would really appreciate you leaving a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use. And uh, we appreciate uh, you connecting us to other listeners. Um, and of course, we always love your feedback. So uh, but as you guys know, if you really, really, really love the podcast, um, you should definitely join our Patreon account. Uh, as of right now, there is just a ton of bonus episodes and extras that are on there just for our patrons. And it's really easy to join and super simple and actually quite cheap. Um, and if you would like to support the podcast and what we do, we would invite you to become a patron um, on our Patreon account. You'll also receive early release uh, podcast episodes um, and all sorts of fun stuff from your two favorite co-hosts. So definitely go check that out and join in. Um, so to wrap it up, I'm Aaron Monas here with my co-host Blake Dean and our fabulous producer Bailey Dainley. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening.